Let's continue worship with a reading from Scripture. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. How's everyone doing? We should also mention that um, all of the funds that are going uh, to, uh, if you buy merchandise, it goes to support Celebrate Recovery, which is a recovery program that meets here on Thursday nights. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's, we've, we've priced them a little, you know, 20 bucks for a shirt. You're like, come on. Well, it's really, you're making a donation to help support um, Celebrate Recovery. So, um, Good morning. I'm Chris, a teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Glad you're here. Uh, real quick before we get into it, we have a course going on right now through the summer called Alpha. Alpha is for people who don't call themselves Christians, and it's to create this atmosphere where you can come and ask your honest questions and tell us what you think about Christianity and what you think is, you know, nonsense. And, and we have these amazing discussions around people's obstacles to faith, and they have been amazingly productive and profound, um, at least in my opinion, in my participation with it. And I just want to ask you, and I want to invite you, uh, I'm going to begin uh, praying and fasting on Wednesdays uh, for the people who are at Alpha who do not know Jesus. And I want to invite you into that. If you are a prayer, if you want to get with me, shoulder up next to me, and ask God to do the things that we can't do by mere intellectual discussions, um, that some people might come to know Jesus um, on Alpha, on the Alpha nights. And that Alpha culminates August 12th on Saturday. So I just want to invite you, if you want to jump in on that with me, from now until August 12th, you can not eat, and instead of eating on Wednesdays, pray um, for the people at Alpha. They might come to know who we know, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who's changed some of our lives. So partner with me, okay? So we're in week two um, of a conversation called Formed. Um, in which we are acknowledging some realities about life, Christian or not, uh, no matter how you feel about Jesus or Christianity, I'm going to just tell you something right now. You are being formed. You're being formed. Things are forming you. You're changing physically, yes, but, but who you are is changing. Like we said last week, dude, you are not the same person you were 10 years ago. You've changed. People change all the time. If you're married for any amount of time, you know this. Like, people change. Tim Keller says the secret of marriage is learning to love the stranger you find yourself married to. And it's true. But what we're getting after in this conversation is that we, me and you, play a role in the formation of our soul. We play a role. In other words, you're not an innocent victim. That's what we said last week. You're not a helpless victim. When it comes to who you are becoming, you can play a role in the formation of your soul. The Bible's gonna say things like this. His mercies are new every morning. You ever read that one? Beautiful verse. It's on coffee mugs and bumper stickers, so we don't pay attention to it. But what's that mean? <laughs> you know, sometimes the familiarity of scripture, it just, familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that one? What does it mean that his mercies are new every morning? At least in part, it means that today, today, right now, doesn't have to be the same as yesterday. Like there's something, somehow, in which God has positioned himself towards us, what he's done, that has made room 
for you to be transformed. That's kind of the narrative of the Bible. He's done something in order that you can be changed. And the point is that you have a role to play in your transformation. Every morning, apparently according to the Bible, every morning when you wake up, God has opened up the new possibility for you to be transformed. And it's on offer every morning. This is the truth of what we're talking about, that we're being changed, and that the Bible has things to say about our formation, right? So the reality also to this conversation is that there's a wide variety of things that are forming you, wide variety, right? So like, for example, of the things that are making you make the choices that you make and think the thoughts that you thought and create the habits that you create, there's a whole lot of, th- whole lot of stuff that's helping you decide what you're gonna do, right? Like, for example, yesterday's failures. You might have just screwed the pooch yesterday, like hardcore. And you're like, well, I'm going to mess up again today. There's complexities. There's difficulties. There's circumstances. There's other people, right, that teach you, oh, I can't act like that because last time I acted like that, this happened, and so I'm going to act this way. There's evil in the world. All of these things can form you. You can allow those to form you. You can allow your failures and your struggles and your shortcomings to be the defining trait of who you are. You can. Conversely, you could allow your strengths and your talents or your possessions or your money or your looks to define who you are. And the point of this whole conversation is over and above all those things, your strengths and your weaknesses, your past failures and your successes, you can allow the goodness and the generosity and the unfailing love of God to form who you are becoming. That's the good news of the gospel. That not only your past failures don't dictate you, but your past successes don't totally define who you are. Praise God, right? It sets us free from performance mentality to where my value is resting just as as high as I can jump or as much as I can bench or as good as I can make money, right? Both of them are dead-end streets, your successes and your failures when it comes to defining who you are. And the gospel is that you can allow the goodness and the generosity and the overwhelming love of God to form the person you are becoming. Do you want that? Here's the ever-present reality of the Christian life, guys. Any people at any time trying to follow Jesus, here's the ever-present reality. We live our lives amidst a storm of competing narratives. We live our lives amidst a storm of competing narratives. Christian or not, it's true. You have, let me tell you what I mean by that. You have a personal narrative. You know what your personal narrative is? Your family of origin, right? Your past choices, your friendships, your hobbies, your personality. That's your personal narrative, right? This is my life and this is what it's like. And then... There's the cultural narrative. And the cultural narrative wants to tell you how to interpret your personal narrative. The cultural narrative is going to say things like, well, you're poor because you make this much. Or you're rich because you make this much. The, personal narr- uh, the cultural narrative is going to try to dictate how you interpret your personal narrative. So the cultural narrative, and then it's going to say things like, oh, by the way, you know, you should choose this when it comes to your sexuality. The cultural narrative has its own definitions of what is ha- what what it takes to be happy, right? You, you should be friends with this type of people. Here are the right hobbies to have. The culture has a narrative, y'all. And it's gonna try to answer really big questions too. Like, what's the point of life? There's a culture narrative out there that's gonna tell you, you know what the point of life is? Being on the right side of politics. There's a culture narrative out there that's gonna tell you, this is what you need to be happy, right? And if you look at it, despite the cultural bravado of inclusivity and diversity, it's actually quite narrow what the culture thinks you have to have to be happy. It's quite exclusive, right? But the point is we all live our lives in the brackish waters of competing narratives. You know what brackish water is? 
when salt and, and freshwater meet, and it creates this weird line. It's really fascinating. Look it up online. And it's this mixture of, of these different elements. And we live our lives, y'all, in this mixture of different narratives. Which one will you allow to form you? Which one will you anchor your life to? And then, of course, there's the biblical narrative, which we dug into last week. And the question that we're asking really is which narrative are you going to tie your heart to? Which one are you going to say, this is what I think is ultimately true and how I'm going to live my life out of? I'm going to swim towards this one because the choice is yours, right? Uh, last week, we looked at what is the good news, what is the gospel, in which we said the good news of the whole biblical narrative, which, I mean, what, all you need is like, what, 30 minutes to explain that? So we did that, easy, right? And then this week, it's how does the gospel form us? We, we touched on some of that last week. How does the gospel form us is, is this week. Um, and we could just go through all the points from last week, um, like the idea of how you created good. Like, how does that form you? What is that? How does that make you into a kind of person? The Imago Dei, what we talked about, right? Or because of pride and self-choice, humanity has become blind, right? That the, the biblical narrative is basically like me and we're like dead men in the dark, in desperate need of a savior. Okay, that should do something to how you behave. <laughs> like that, that should do something to how you think about yourself. That should do something to how you talk to other people, <laughs> shouldn't it? Shouldn't this, shouldn't this idea that, like, it's not the world out there, but actually something in here that's broken, shouldn't that, like, change how you deal with conflict? Seems like it should. Like, that should form something about you. Does it? Or is that the one we want to be like, sin, such a retro, wait, let's just, is that the one we go without? Or how, last week, the choice of God to rescue us and give us the imputed righteousness of Christ, the grace of God freely given to us, like, that should form you. Okay, Amber Alert, everyone got it? Okay. That should, that should do things to how you talk to people. Like, we could literally go through all those. All, we could look, we, in fact, we could go through all the aspects of life and talk about how the gospel informs and should form how we think about money, how we think about sex, how we think about work, how we think about family, marriage, race, ethnicity, power, authority, self-discipline, guilt, shame, sickness, evangelism. The gospel has things to say about how we think about all those things. The unmerited grace of God can utterly transform each of those areas. Does it? They're having much more fun than we are. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> right? Some of y'all are banging on the walls. You know, Do, Is it? Is the, is the gospel informing how you think about all of your possessions, how you think about your money, how you think about your sex life? It, it can. <laughs> Apparently it's on offer, right? And it's easily, when we, when we talk, so today is how does the gospel form us, okay? And when we talk about this, it's, it's easy to quickly go to the outcomes of how the gospel, that's kind of what I just said, right? All, how it forms, how we think about money. So you should think this way about money. You should think this way about, you know, your sex ethic. You should think this way about guilt and shame. You know, we could talk about that, but that's, that's all really outcomes, isn't it? Isn't that kind of external behavior? Like, in other words, it's easy to go to what it looks like, the consequences of the gospel. When the gospel takes root, it looks like this. You're more loving, you're more forgiving, you treat others with dignity. Uh, but if the discussion is only that, then we've just talked about the consequences of the gospel, the external outcomes, the results of the gospel. And in all honesty, some of those outcomes can be achieved outside the gospel. You can be a more loving person. You can be a more forgiving to an extent. 
You can be a more, you can treat people with dignity and not be a Christian, okay? You don't have to be a Christian to be those things, right? If we just talk about how it affects us, it's easy to confuse the consequences of the gospel with the gospel itself and think that the gospel is simply behavior management. We tracking? The gospel is not just love other people. It's not the gospel. The gospel is not just go to church. So we have to stay focused on what is the gospel? What's the nature of the gospel? One way the love of God impacts me daily as a perfectionist and someone who can be super hard on myself, God's mercy and compassion in Christ gives me permission to fail and be wrong. Okay? without utterly falling apart. It has relieved that desperate instinct I have to defend myself, okay? So that's, that's an outcome of the gospel. So that's, that's, I can preach that. I can say, well, you, you can think about this and you don't have to be a perfectionist anymore, but then you can do that without the gospel. You, everyone understand what I'm saying? So what we gotta focus on is at what level and in what way does the gospel begin to change how we actually live, okay? That's what we're going today. And in some ways, the gospel forms us just like anything else forms us, right? The more attention you give to it, it, the more it captures your imagination, the more it weaves its way into the fabric of who you are, uh, it begins to form you. For example, uh, and many things form you like this. If you watch Star Wars every night for five years, it's going to color how you see the world, right? I only had to watch Star Wars once before I was trying to use the force to like move things, right? So in some ways, the story of the Bible forms you by how much attention you give to it. If you give it a lot of attention, if you read it, if you meditate on it, if you treasure it, it's going to form you. Okay, but that's not the whole story. That's not the full picture of how it forms you. It does capture your imagination by giving you an alternative narrative to live out of. It does that. Yes, it does. But it's not simply that because you can read the Bible forward and backward and not allow it to form you in the way that God wants to form you. Jesus said things like this in John 5. He said, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So that's fascinating. So the Bible apparently doesn't form you like a history lesson can form you and capture your imagination. Can a history lesson do that? Absolutely. But rather, according to Jesus, it forms you like a living relationship forms you. This is how it impacts us. In other words, it's dynamic the way the gospel engages with us. Becoming a Christian is not merely introducing a religious book. It is introducing a brand new relationship. Does that make sense? This is one of the central claims of the Bible, that there is someone behind the whole thing, revealing himself, longing to be known, longing to be acknowledged. It's an invitation to be formed, not by a religion, but by a relationship. This is the way the gospel forms us. So therefore, to answer the question, how does the gospel form us? Well, it's a bit like asking, how does getting married form you? Who's married? Well, how does it form you? Well, it's not all at once, is it? And yet, that day marked a clear difference in your life, didn't it? After that moment, you were different, but it was just the beginning. And that day changes you, but then the relationship, even to this day, is changing you. Is it not? It's hard to nail down exactly all the ways in which getting married has formed you. See, and oftentimes it's easy to take relationships for granted, isn't it? To forget why you got into that relationship at all. Relationships can become mundane, can't they? Like, you know, you got married five years, 10 years ago, and it's like, okay, we're basically roommates now, you know? 
you stop enjoying them, you stop investing, and sometimes you're like looking at them like, you know, you look over and they're like asleep on the couch, and you're like, I mean, there's some reason that I married that person. I don't quite remember. Oh, that's right. Uh, it was for love, you know? It, and if it was the right kind of love, if it was love for the right person, for the right reasons, it was love for their own sake. You love them not because what they could give you. Will you get a lot of things in marriage? Oh, sure, sure. But that's not why you married them. If you did, you're a mercenary. No, we marry each other because of the delight and surprise of learning who they are. That's why, man. That's the real joy in any relationship, y'all. It's not just what they give you. It's that you admire them. You love them for who they were. You love them for uh, the, the potential of increasingly knowing who they are for the rest of their life. Of course, in marriage, you receive all, you know, in sexual intimacy, livelihood, a place to live, material goods. All these things we, we receive in marriage, but that's not why we get married, right? The fun of being married, in my opinion, is the surprise and delight of the ongoing revelation. Sometimes I will look at my wife. Who are you? <laughs> you, you unpredictable unicorn narwhal. <laughs> you mysterious creature. Listen, listen, y'all. That's the fun. That's the fun, brother, sister. Get off your phone and look, look at the enigma sitting next to you and... <laughs> And look, listen, listen, and get after their hearts. Like, pursue them, right? Oh, okay. Like, listen, this is ultimately true for the guys more than the girls. You have no clue what's going on in there, all right? Right? But it's, it's true for the guys too, ladies. You don't know, you got no, dude, put your phone down. Get after their hearts. Like what if you've been married for 10, 15 years? You're missing out on the joy of the ever-increasing revelation of who they are today. Like you remember who they were 15 years ago. You're kind of like, I wish you'd be who you were 15 years ago. Well, they're not. They're not. And the question is, are you going to love them where they're at? Are you going to get after them where they're at? Are you going to pursue them where they're at? Man, look, I'm preaching to myself, all right? My wife's down there. She's wagging and you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> but man, she's so... <laughs> She's so embarrassed right now. And if, so many Christians miss the forest for the trees here when it comes to God, okay? It was because of the mystery of his, the delight and surprise of his love for you. That's why you got in the door. You didn't get in the door because you saw these people not having fun, not going to parties, watching R-rated movies. You're like, yeah, I guess I want to do that. I guess I need more rules in my life. That's what I need in my life. Dude, the center of the Christian life is not a moral code. It is not religious aid or duty. It's not humanitarian aid. At the center, the very heartbeat of the Christian life is the love and the mystery of God. Not your love for him, his love for you. And you tell me that's not a surprise? You're not surprised that God loves you? Dude, I'm surprised that God loves you. Like, I, I, know, I know you guys. It's, of course, it's, and, and is it delightful? Yes, does it delight when we realize, dude, this, we didn't make this book up. 3,000 years old, some of these books in the Bible. We didn't make this stuff up. Y'all, the Bible's not the product of American culture. Praise his name. We come to the Bible as this historical, and what do we find in it but the love of God, the loyal forgiveness and mercy of God over and over and over again. If that doesn't delight and surprise you, wake up, bro. Like, he didn't have to position himself that way towards you. 
Like he could have done something else and would have been right and just in his position towards us. And he chose mercy, all right? He chose it. And if that doesn't delight and surprise you, man, I don't know what will, right? It's why at the culmination of all things, when Christ returns, it is called a marriage feast. It's the marriage feast of the Lamb. What's it mean? It means the way God longs to transform you is more like an intimate love relationship. It is more like an abundant feast. This is the picture that God gives us and how he longs to impact our lives. He's inviting you to a wedding, not someone else's wedding, your own wedding, right? Do you remember your wedding day? See, all many Christians go through life thinking, I'm, I've got in this thing and I'm, now I'm kind of in this set of rules, right? I gotta go to church I gotta give my money, ugh, right? I can't watch what I really wanna watch. And I guess if I follow the rules enough, you know, then God will accept me. Listen, if that's all it is, then the gospel, that's behavior management. That's all it is. Is that the gospel? That's not, in fact, that's not even good news. That's just advice. That's not good news. Guys, if it's just an ethical code, it means that it's all external. It's shallow. It's superficial. According to the Bible, the way God longs to form you is apparently more like getting married and feasting than it is like following rules. Where the table is big and bountiful and the people that are there you deeply love. Has anyone ever been to a dinner like this? where there's depth and connection and honesty and vulnerability and gratitude, and there's a feast and there's enough food to go around, and there's a gratitude in your heart that just, I don't know if you're like, you're like, that's the guy real hippy-dippy on me. Maybe you're not hippy-dippy enough for that, right? I remember a few times in my life where I've been sitting around a table feasting and drinking with people I'm profoundly grateful for, and I can feel the goodness of God in every conversation, in every bite, in every, it's just sweet. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's just sweet. And usually with me, there's a guitar involved somewhere. So there's some singing, right? And we're just, and you're like, see, you left me there, right? And you're not, you're, right? And you're just, has anyone ever been there where you're just unloading life with one another and there's affections and there's no judgment? Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God's like. It's like a feast where you're completely loved and completely vulnerable, fully known, fully loved, where there's enough to go around. There's not scarcity. We're not afraid that there's not enough. We better save some. That's not the picture. It's a banquet, a feast where in Scripture he talks about we've killed the, the fatted calf. There's enough to go around. Maybe you remember your wedding day. Maybe you remember sitting around and eating and drinking and being just overwhelmed with gratitude. I didn't eat a bite at my wedding. I was too busy dancing, sweating like I am now, right? Swinging my bride around, right? To bluegrass and Motown. Uh, it was fantastic. But moments like that, y'all, moments where the goodness of God feels tangible. We get glimpses, don't we, in this life? Like through a mirror dimly, right? Where you catch a glimpse of heaven, and it fills you with a kind of goodness that's just hard to articulate. I'm not an extremely sentimental guy, but in, in, the, in my life, I remember at occasions like this, when I'm with people I love, where we're unloading life, being pushed to gratitude and tears, looking around the table, saying, I'm so profoundly grateful for these people that I can be loved and known and transparent and vulnerable in moments like this. And Jesus said, they're gonna get, we're gonna find who that is. <laughs> Jesus said, the kingdom of God's like that. A feast 
a marriage day. This is one of the pictures Jesus gives us of what it means to become a Christian. I could read you several parables in Luke and in Matthew. Now, the crazy thing about Jesus' parables when he compares this, one of the main points is that the feast has been thrown, but the feast has been and is being rejected by those who were invited. But the image is clear. Jesus is comparing feasting and marital bliss with knowing and loving God. And our question is, how does that form you? And at what level? See, not to oversimplify, but at its very root, the good news of the gospel forms you by, first and foremost, capturing your heart. Read Song of Solomon. It is weird and uncomfortable. Read the Psalms. Read the New Testament and listen how they rave on and on about the love of God, nor height, nor depth, nor anything. All creasing and separate us. Dude, that's how lovers talk, right? As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. More than watchmen wait for the morning, I wait for you. Dude, that's how lovers talk. The authors of the Bible, for the authors of the Bible, it was the love of God that was so surprising and transforming. Or you could say it this way, God changed how their lives look by first changing how their hearts felt. The goodness of God changes what we love first, and then our lives follow. Got it? Because your life will always follow what you love. And if you think, you're over-romanticizing it, and you're using language that's too emotive. Well, your problem's not with me. It's with the Bible, first of all. And number two, if you think this sermon has nosedive into hippy-dippy, free spirits, all, you know, all you need is love, nonsense, my next point, we'll curious of that real quick, okay? Um, it, it, my next point, it's a great conversation started with strangers. Uh, you know, when I talk about how the gospel forms us, probably one of the best dinner conversations you can have. I love talking about this on double dates, right when the food comes out. And obviously, you, you know what I want to talk about. It's Circumcision. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great double date convo, right? Um, if you're not a Christian, you're probably thinking, that sounds about right. I went on a double date one time with Christians and they were weird. Um, circumcision, of all things, <laughs> is a huge deal in the Bible. Uh, what's that about and why, God? <laughs> uh, well, in the Old Testament, it's this hidden but external symbol of God's covenant. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Even in the New Testament, this is a huge bone of contention um, in the Gentile churches for obvious reasons. They're like, we got to do what? <laughs> to get on this? Uh, I don't know if you've ever, I mean, seriously, guys, I'm not making this up. Read Galatians, all right? I don't know if you're, there's more talk of genitalia in there than you want, okay? Um, <laughs> but you're like, thanks, I brought a friend today, Chris. Why are you going to talk about uh, Like, what, what, is, what is that about? Right? And why? Well, it's fascinating how the term changes in the Bible. When you get to the New Testament, um, it comes to represent this outward, external transformation that could be done without the inner transformation of the heart. So in other words, you could do that. You could do the outward thing and still miss the inner thing. And in some ways, it came to represent the Jewish way of life, the Levitical law, the religious ethic. So you can be a moral, religious, upright person, externally circumcised, and still not be formed the way God wants to form you. Romans 8, 28 says this, For no one is, is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You're like, well, I'm pretty sure it is. It's... Oh, but one is a Jew who one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. 
by the Spirit, not by the letter. Colossians 2.11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Praise his name. (laughs) By putting the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. See, this is interesting what he does here. He relates baptism with circumcision. Now, we can get down with baptism a bit more, right? But both of these things are external acts. They are symbolic that may or may not represent the reality of your life. See, this is, this is very difficult if you think the Bible is a long list of rules that only deals with external behavior. Because here it's saying you can observe outward behavior and still miss it. You can get dunked and still miss it because you've missed the area of formation, which according to Romans 2.29 is the heart, your inside, the seat of your affection, your desires, what you love. In other words, the gospel forms you from the inside out, not the outside in. It changes you by changing what you love. Jesus knew this. He said, from the overflow of the heart, you live your life. In reality, you are led by your heart. Right? Not just what you say or what you do, but by what you love. Matthew 6 says this, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, yeah, there your heart will be also. Oh, by the way, it goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. Either he's going to hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Fascinating. He's talking about the seat of your affections. Where does the gospel form us? Is it external? Well, it does, yes, but is that where it is only? If we stop there, we've missed the gospel. Remember, uh, 1 Samuel tells us how God sees us. He says, don't look on the appearance of man, because I have rejected, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks outwardly, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's what it says. As as many pastors have said, I'm sure, the, matter, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Remember also Romans 2.4 says this. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. All these things are pointing at how the gospel forms you. It, it changes you by changing what you love. It changes you by changing what you love. The gospel opens our eyes to the beauty and the majesty of God, the worth of God. And we begin to love him, not for what he can give us, but for who he is the ever-increasing revealing of his delightful and surprising love for you. That's why we pursue him. This is why the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. If you call yourself a Christian, of all the things that others would say about you that characterize your life, do you think anyone would say, man, that dude just loves him some Jesus? He or she just overflowing with love. Girls, full of God's love for others, right? I mean, they might say you're full of something else, right? But would they describe you as being full of the love of God? Full of love for God? Would, would your husband say that about you? Would your wife, would your kids say that about you? They're full. And if not, is it possible that you've missed the forest for the trees when it comes to Christian living? That you've settled for external, superficial definitions of what it means to be a Christian that never touches your heart, that never transforms the things you love, and in reality, guys, we all miss it, right? We all miss the forest for the trees and revert to thinking we can change ourselves from the outside in. Perhaps you're on your 26th behavior management campaign, right? To no avail. I'm going to change. I'm really going to do it this time. The gospel forms us by showing us not simply a moral law. If that's all it showed you, it would crush you. 
The gospel is that God's love for you was so great that he let the moral law crush his son instead of you. Therefore, the gospel engages our hearts first. It appeals to our hearts, not with law, with love, not with rules, with relationship. Does the Bible have things to say about how you live? Yes, it does have advice. Yes, it does, but it is not primarily advice. It is primarily news. Tim Keller says this, and I've used this before. I don't mind saying it. it if the gospel is just rules and advice, then it's contradicting itself because it says that it's good news. You know the difference between advice and news? Advice is a messenger coming across the hill. You're in battle. The messenger comes across and he says, here's how you need to fight. You need to flank the enemy. You need to use your bows on this side. You need to come around and send the cavalry down there. That's advice. Other religions, and many people think Christianity, is basically advice. Live your life this way. That's advice. Christianity says it's news, good news. So same picture, messenger comes over the hill, and here we go, he's gonna tell us how we need to fight this battle. Nope, he says, hey guys, good news. You know what news is? He says, the battle is over. They're all dead. The, the battle's been won. We won, and we didn't even lift a sword. That's news. The gospel is news, not advice. The gospel is that the battle has been won. The blood has been shed on your behalf. And it says, let's feast. That's all there is to do. Get the spoils of war. The enemy's been defeated. They're all dead. God has taken away the enemy's weapons. That's biblical language of what he's done in Christ. Do you believe it? That's why it's by faith through grace, man. We get the news. And the question is, will you put your swords down and walk over the hill to feast? Or will you say, no, 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 no. I ain't gonna put this down. I can do this myself. I'm pretty strong. I'm a good dude, right? Right? I'm telling, we're giggling. I like it. I like it. But some of you are walking your Christian life like this. You're thinking, it's up to me and I can nail it because look at me. I'm a strong, I'm good, I'm great guy, right? Look at me. I make so much money. I can, I can do church. I can do Jesus. No, you cannot. There is a wall between you and Jesus called pride. And until the cross takes it away, just splits it in half, you are outside of the graces of Jesus. You have to, the first thing we do in Christianity is receive what? The forgiveness of Jesus. The grace, the news of the cross, not the advice. Sure, he's gonna have advice later, but the first thing's first. He's gotta tell you something that you can't tell yourself. You know what it is? I love you deeply. Deeply I love you sacrificially, so to the point that I'm shedding this, the blood of my son. That's the first thing you got to get in the gospel. Yeah, yeah, your life's going to be transformed. Yeah, the outward's going to change, but the first thing's first. He comes to us as a lover. There's this beautiful scripture in the Old Testament that says, you know, you guys call me master, but I want you to call me lover. That's what I want. That's my vision for my people, be, to be in love, romance with me, to be married to me. Hmm, it's good news. We'll end it with this, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Oh, oh, what did he just say? He just said, it doesn't matter how you're living. Doesn't matter if you're doing all these things. Doesn't matter if you're achieving all these things. And, oh, you, know the, you know what the only thing that matters? Faith working through love. Is that how someone would describe your life? I've seen that bro at his work. I seen that dude going, you know how I describe, I'll describe his life as faith working through love. Like have mercy Jesus, that we would be the kind of people that people would look at our lives and say, look at it. 
faith working through love. They're leaning into the goodness of God, trusting the goodness of God, working that out by how? Loving everyone like crazy, like crazy hospitality, right? God, may it be so. God, may it be so. This is a part of our service, y'all, where we come to the communion table.